have to have even more conversations with young folks if there are family histories. Even if your parents, if your own parents have not struggled with substance use disorders, consider your grandparents, great-grandparents, extended family members, because if it's in your family, you need to be aware that you are likely much more prone Hello, and welcome to season two of the Collegiate Ministries podcast. This season, we will be focusing on issues of mental health and college-age young adults in partnership with The Wellness Project, which is an initiative of Campus City Wesley and Studio Wesley, along with the Florida United Methodist Foundation. My name is Heather Pancoast, and I am one of the co-directors of the Gator Wesley Campus Ministry at the University of Florida and Santa Fe College in Gainesville, Florida. As we begin, I'd like you to know that some of these interviews may contain sensitive material around the topic of mental health that could be difficult to hear for some of our listeners. Additionally, this podcast was produced for informational and educational purposes only and is not meant to replace the advice of your therapist or doctor. We are so glad you are here and hope that this podcast is meaningful and helpful to you in your journey to mental wellness. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Collegiate Ministries podcast, um, The Wellness Project, where we are in episode three today, tackling um, some really interesting and important topics. And I'm joined today by two really awesome people that got up early this morning to spend some time with me. I'm going to let them introduce um, themselves, but full disclosure, one of them is my dad. I'll let you guys guess which one um, as they introduce themselves. So why don't we begin um, with you, Andy, and give us a little bit of information about yourself. And um, thank you both so much for being here this morning. Good morning, Heather. Thanks for having me this morning. Great to be on. Powerful, important topic to be talking about addictions in general within college students, uh, alcoholism specifically. I'm a psychotherapist, a licensed clinical social worker in the state of Florida, a pastoral counselor, and I've been the director of the Lakewood Methodist Church Counseling Center for over 17 years in St. Petersburg, Florida. And uh, my wife and I have no kids. So if that's any indication here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, which one's my dad, right? Spoiler spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> All right. So I guess everyone probably knows at this point that the next person to introduce themselves is dad. And so I'll let him go ahead and tell you a bit about himself this morning. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Bob Piercy. I was not going to say that uh, I was uh, Heather's dad. I was going to say that her children are my grandchildren, but uh, <laughs> that uh, uh, would have been a lesser clue. Uh, I am a uh, United Methodist pastor. I have been such for nigh on to 40 years now. Uh, I am also a recovering person. I have uh, about 36 years of recovery under my belt uh, and uh, <clears throat> have worked in the field. I was director of pastoral counseling at a drug and alcohol center as part of my career. I have worked with uh, parishioners and uh, recovery communities uh, throughout uh, my career and uh, a deep interest in the, not only the, the destructiveness of addiction, but the joys of recovery. 
Well, thank you also for being here. I, I know that um, you, you say you didn't have a choice because we are related, but I, I do appreciate it. And as with all of these podcasts, we ask the folks that we do to be a part of the conversation for a couple of reasons. One, just generally because of their experience in the area, um, their their personal and professional experience. Um, and, and sometimes because they're related to us, um, but particularly this morning, I, I do, I'm thankful for um, both of you coming at this topic of addiction and mental health um, with personal and professional experience. Um, we, we recognize and we see so often in uh, the college culture that um, substance abuse is very widespread. Um, we see that folks are beginning, students are beginning to develop a pattern of addiction during their college years. And we also see that many, many, many of our students are coming out of a family system where uh, addictive patterns are fully in play. And so it it is um, something that they're already coming to the table with. And so we're just Again, very thankful to both of you um, to to give us this time this morning, and we know that it will be helpful um, to those that are listening. So we've begun each podcast with the same question. So I'm going to ask both of you uh, to take a crack at this one. Um, And so we'll start with you, Andy. The, The question is, why does talking about addiction and mental health matter um, in the the, um, arena of campus ministry and college work? Great question. And just a little personal disclosure, like Bob, I am also a recovering person. Our histories of addictions are different, but the recovery processes themselves are very similar. And uh, we're going to get to this a little later, I do believe, in some of the questions, but I am also an ACOA adult child of an alcoholic, came from an alcoholic family, which goes right to this point of why is it so important to talk about for college students when we're already seeing so many young adults entering college who may already have pre-existing issues with alcohol and other drugs. I think we make a mistake when we separate alcohol from all other drugs. It's not. It's still a drug. It's just in a liquid form. But the question of why is it so important that we talk to college age folks about it is because typically this is a new developmental stage, different in that for many of them, they're away from home for the first time, out from under the watchful eye of parents, guardians. And now for a lot of them, uh, they're, they're spreading their wings and doing it in very dangerous ways. Tragically, the students often don't even know that they are doing harm to themselves or others because it's so common on college campuses and the numbers are overwhelming. You know, typically more than 50% of students are actively using alcohol, especially from my research from the National Institute of Health, the earliest days in campus life for freshmen can be the most precarious. And a lot of the things that happen during the first weeks, months, in a college career can have long-term, even lifelong implications for ongoing behavior, for becoming dependent on particular substances, you know, abusing substances, changes people's lives, impacts their families, their communities, sometimes in devastating and 
even permanent ways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Bob, what would you add to that, if anything? I'd kind of repeat what Andy said. The scripts that are being set up uh, at this early time, this is the first time for uh, most of these young people that they are without that kind of parental control uh, that will place greater restrictions. And they're going into an environment that encourages uh, the use of mood-altering chemicals. Uh, when those patterns set in and they are learned and they become uh, habitual, the the movement from abuse and habit to addiction uh, is uh, just a, a step that no one sees coming until all of a sudden it's there. So uh, the, the addiction stuff is being just imprinted in college life. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think you both make a good point, especially Andy, what you said about freshmen um, who have, you know, not necessarily had the freedom to um, partake in, in substances, illegal substances or in, and for them, alcohol would still be considered illegal. Right. And, um, and they do so in such large quantities. Uh, binge drinking is a, is a real issue. Um, and it's really normalized on a college campus. It's, it's very much seen as, is drinking to the point of blacking out, to the point of losing consciousness is not abnormal uh, to college students to talk about, to uh, say that this happened to them. It's just very, uh, very normalized. And it can be, like you said, a, a incredibly devastating the effects that it can have on a student. Bob, if you would, um, for us just to kind of get us thinking, uh, talk to us a little bit about the process of addiction from a psychological and then from a physiological standpoint, kind of how those two play out. Well, they're interacting uh, together. Uh, some drugs are universally addictive. If you take morphine, you will become addicted to it. It's, uh, uh, and that's why it has to be a, a controlled substance under or medical supervision, uh, or you, you will become addicted. Not all people will become physically addicted to uh, alcohol. There's a lot about how the body works uh, with that. Psychological addiction is, is, a, is a different pattern, and it kind of moves from learning the mood change to seeking the mood change uh, to, ooh, there's some bad uh, results from the mood change, but people continue to use anyway. And now uh, we move into a people really don't know how to socialize anymore without using a mood-altering uh, chemical, uh, and uh, there's an addictive pattern uh, just in that, I don't know how else to do it. Uh, we can see that in all kinds of forms of uh, examples in our life. I mean, we can do it in eating. We can do it in all kinds of things. We just see those patterns uh, set in. Now, if at the same time one is becoming physically addictive, uh, and the, the simple definition of physical addictions, if I stop using the chemical, there are withdrawal symptoms, uh, and those are generally evident and measurable, uh, then when those withdrawal symptoms uh, kick in, I now turn to that substance to alleviate them. Uh, you have uh, basically that two pathways that have happened and a person is in the addictive uh, reality and it will take intervention uh, of some sort to break that, that pattern. Uh, the other thing that is, has to be recognized both physically and psychologically when an addictive pattern has been has been established, even when it's broken, returning to that is a very, very rapid process. So it may take someone years to become addicted 
once they're addicted, even if they stop, if they now return to the substance, they will become addicted very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. That's why total abstinence is, uh, in almost all cases, the the recommended, the, the necessary uh, process of, of breaking out of this pattern. Gotcha. Andy, anything that you would add to that in terms of the differentiation between the, the physical and the psychological addiction pro addictive process? Not necessarily differentiating. Uh, what I try to help most of my patients who are struggling with addiction realize is this is about the brain. We are hijacking the brain. For most people who get involved with you know, heavy drinking and other substances, it's often about something doesn't feel good and I want to feel better. And if I can use this particular substance to make myself feel a little better, if it decreases stress, if I think it's reducing my depression, um, if I just went through a horrible breakup and my heart is broken and I don't want to feel the pain, if I can hijack some of the pleasure centers in the brain and feel better for a little while, then it's got to be okay, right? Mm -hmm. And that's when we can start down that really horrible process of creating an addictive disorder within ourselves. And let me make this clear. Um, that you can talk to a cardiologist, for instance, and they will tell you that an occasional couple of glasses of red wine can actually be healthy for your heart. Okay, that's from a cardiac perspective. But if you're talking to a brain specialist, no, there is zero amount of alcohol that is healthy for the brain. The chemical ethyl alcohol is toxic to the human brain. We can do less damage if we can maintain moderate levels of consumption. But then again, there are certain folks, and sometimes there is no way of knowing if they are going to have the capacity to drink in moderation. I was working with one of my folks this past week. He's a young man in his mid-20s, married, stepchild in the household. And he's very clear. He drinks because he struggles with being social. But if he drinks, he feels freer, he's less inhibited. At this point, he's struggling with whether he would even want to live without being able to socialize because of what he believes at this moment alcohol can do for him when it changes some of the basic processes of his brain. But now he's trying to figure out how does he stop fighting with his wife? How does she stop fighting with him? One of the reasons that they got together as a couple is because they have fun drinking together, which leads to a long pattern of horrible dysfunction. And one of the ways that I'm starting to make some slow inroads with this guy is, what are you teaching your stepdaughter? What is she seeing? Are you okay if she emulates in her life what she is now learning from you and her mom. Well, I mean, that's that's a great, a great point and a great kind of segue to the next question, which has to do with family dynamics. And, you know, I think it's interesting when you talk about um, about what we're teaching our children. I, I got to spend uh, the day with my 13 year old at the Florida, Georgia football game. Mm -hmm. 
on Saturday, which you all uh, out there in the listening world, if you are not aware, the amount of alcohol consumption <laughs> at that game pre prior to the game, during the game, because they actually sell alcohol in the stadium and after the game is enormous. And my 13 year old looked at me at one point and said, does beer just actually taste that good? And it was a really interesting conversation with her because my answer was, well, no, <laughs> it really doesn't taste that good. Um, but it, it is about what it does to the brain that allows people to feel less stressed, less um, depressed, less anxious, you know, whatever, what fill in the blank. Um, and so I, I just, I think you make an excellent point, Andy, when you talk about our children, I, I see so much of that, that drinking culture normalized, even in the home. Um, you know, what are we talking to our children about? I think it's just a value to think through. So you you mentioned uh, family dynamics. And so I would love, Andy, if you would um, tackle this question of how we see patterns of addiction um, developing within families. Going back to that wonderful question that we ask about so many things in life, is it nature or nurture? Mm. And often the answer is yes. Mm some combination of both but absolutely when we see addictions running within families we have to have even more conversations with young folks if there are family histories even if your parents if your own parents have not struggled with substance use disorders consider your grandparents great-grandparents extended family members because if it's in your family you need to be aware that you are likely much more prone to having a problem that you may not be able to consciously, willingly control. Gotcha. And and what, Bob, could you tell us a little bit about how we might see um, that addiction process in the family unit impact college students as they launch from the home, as they start out on their college journey? Well, first of all, let me, let me just pick up on something Andy has been saying uh, when we talk about this addiction in general. In, in one respect, all addiction is physical. It is brain chemistry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about the psychological versus the physical addiction, and we don't always see clear with physical withdrawal patterns from what we would call psychological addictions. But our pleasure centers, uh, our coping centers, our relief of emotional pain centers have learned uh, that, uh, and the brain chemistry has changed as we use uh, the, the, these chemicals. So uh, we're always dealing with, with physical addiction in some respect. Uh, we also see in families, as you talk about how families influence us, uh, the statistics uh, is that in the general population, uh, of Western European civilizations, uh, of the people who drink, uh, 10 to 15% of them will become addicted. Uh, for the children of alcoholics, especially the male children of alcoholics, that jumps up to close to 40%. There's a hugely, you know, part of this that is just genetic, uh, and you are, you are <laughs> playing with, with fire when you have this pattern in your parents and, and your so on. Uh, so forth. Yeah. And I want to just real quick fo- ask you a follow-up question. You said the male children of alcoholics have a higher percentage. Is that um, only if their father is an addict or is that also if their mother is an addict? And does that, how does that translate for female children of alcoholics? 
Female population is also increased risk. I don't recall the statistics. Andy might not sure they're all that important, but uh, it is not quite as significant. The male children of uh, male alcoholics are at the highest risk. That that genetic connection is is still there. Is still significant. Yeah, no, no, that's that's great, and I I just think that's so important because I do think the genetic connection is often missed. You know, I've many times said that statement to students and they're like, what? (laughs) It's genetic. I mean, I just don't even think that a lot of people know that and understand that. So I appreciate uh, really making an emphasis of that. If I could just add one component to that. There are some ethnicities that have a genetic makeup that predisposes them to have almost universal issues with alcohol. Uh, a lot of indigenous Americans have virtually zero tolerance and at extremely low levels of alcohol use, the the damage, the implications can be much, much worse. Um, is there any um, indication that this similar kind of genetic predisposition is present with other substances with with, uh, you know, controlled substances, with marijuana, with, do we know, are the statistics there? And if I'm asking you a question that you're not prepared to answer, it's okay to say that too. I'm just curious if we know much about that. There are almost no pure alcoholics anymore. They're virtually non-existent Mm -hmm. um, because there are so many poly addictive folks out there mixing, using, Mm -hmm. uh, People have talked about marijuana being a pathway drug, so is alcohol for that matter. But the number of people who are just simply using alcohol alone, tiny, tiny number, especially now that we have vaping, you can get so many things, you know, THC, CBD, nicotine, all these substances. Yeah. Here's another fa- uh, factor that goes into that. It's what's called a synergistic effect. Uh, and, uh, what it means in essence is when you mix drugs, one plus one doesn't equal two. If one drink of alcohol changes a certain level of mood and one uh, marijuana does, one plus one equals four. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's one of the reasons that we see accidental overdoses mm-hmm. because people mix drugs. They know how uh, how one dose of this drug affects me. I know how one dose of this drug affects me. I mix them together and all of a sudden I've shut the system down and I literally can can lead to death. So, and I do agree with Andy that you very, very seldom see somebody who is not poly addicted now if they, uh, because drugs are just so available and so common. Especially for college students to realize when we're talking about dosage of alcohol, they talk about alcohol equivalents. I know that some kids learn this in maybe a high school health class, but it bears reinforcing when we're talking about dosage and we're talking about alcohol equivalents, let's compare a 12 ounce can of beer, roughly 5% alcohol, um, an ounce and a half of spirits or a five ounce glass of wine. You ask a kid, who says, yeah, well, I had a six-pack last night. I was like, would you drink six shots of bourbon? A lot of them, unfortunately, these days are going to say, sure, man, love it. But a lot of folks would say, gosh, no, I would never drink that much hard alcohol. 
but they have the same amount, a six pack of beer and six shots of bourbon that have virtually the same amount, just like, you know, six glasses, five ounces of wine, they have the same amount. I believe it was last year or maybe within the last year and a half, the National Institute of Health actually changed their recommendation for maximum amounts of alcohol consumption. And for men, they are now saying maximum two alcoholic drinks a day, maximum, maximum 14 in a week. For women, it's less because in large part, body size tends to be smaller. For women, one alcoholic drink a day, seven a week, die from it. Mm-hmm. Now, binge drinking is for males considered five drinks roughly within a consecutive drinking period, uh, two hours or more typically, with a blood alcohol content of 0.08%. For women, it's four drinks. Mm-hmm in that same period yeah. is considered binge drinking. Now, if you take it up, a lot of folks are doing double that and NIH calls intensity drinking. And that can lead to this more serious, imminent physical health problems. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that information. I think that's really, really good stuff for people to understand. And again, I think it's just kind of missed it by so many students, the the uh, the amount of alcohol that they drink can be really really impactful. Yeah, Andy, I'd love to to kind of wrap up. We've got two more questions, and um, I don't I don't mean I would love to wrap up. I would love to talk about this all day. I would love to ask you a question as we wrap up because this podcast is really about the intersection of mental health and college age young adults. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what contributing or maybe complicating factors addiction might have or substance abuse might have for someone who's also facing a mental health diagnosis? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, co-occurring disorders, as it's often called, and when you go into treatment facilities, they will talk about dual diagnosis units where they are focused on not only treating the addictive disorder, but the underlying mental health disorder. For an awful lot of folks, they turn to substances because they have an underlying mental health disorder that they may not be able to self-diagnose, has never been professionally diagnosed or treated. And again, they want to feel better. I have never worked with a patient with bipolar disorder who hasn't at some time in their life struggled with alcohol because usually very early in life wasn't diagnosed and they were trying to figure out some way that they could function better, that they could get through the days better. Anxiety disorders, same thing. You know, you go down the list I don't know of anybody who has ever started drinking alcohol or t- using other substances and said, hey, I think I want to become an addict. Right. <laughs> but they do think that they want one of those other benefits. So tragically, on most campuses, access to mental health counseling, psychiatry is limited at best. 
But what I would say to any student listening to this podcast is if you feel like you have a problem with depression, if you feel down way too often, if you struggle with anxiety, if you have severe mood swings, um, find help. Don't stop until you find professional help to help you figure out what's really going on and get the most effective treatment that you can so you can live the highest and best life that you can without trying to do it all on your own, especially hoping you can feel better by going to a party with a bunch of friends tomorrow night and because yep. tomorrow will only be worse. Yeah. Thank you for that answer. And I, and I think that's kind of our hope, right? For this whole podcast, this whole project is to encourage, to normalize um, our students' understanding of their own men- mental health and their need for, um, for therapy, for, um, for counseling, for uh, you know, medication, if that's in, in the cards for what will help them to, to feel better. So I, this just, it's all so connected and, um, and I appreciate you kind of bringing us back to that um, understanding and that reminder that that help is out there um, and that we can ask for it and receive it. Um, we've been ending um, our podcast with the same question, just like we began. So I, I would love for you each to take a moment and share with us your answer to this question. We'll start with you, Bob. Um, if there was one concept, one idea, one thing that you can make sure every one of our listeners understood about addiction and mental health, what would it be? Well, I think about something Andy just said. Uh, I've never met anybody, I've worked with a lot of alcoholics, I've never met anybody who one morning woke up and said, gee, I think I'll become an addict. Uh, That would be a good way to spend a significant portion of my life and and wreck most of what's going on in my life. You have no idea if you're going to become addicted until you already are addicted. Uh, And uh, I can just absolutely guarantee you, while you might survive addiction, it will wreak havoc to a great deal of your life, and you'll spend a lifetime trying to uh, recoup uh, some of of what you've you've lost. Uh, You live in a world on the campus, well, you live in in an American society that is alcohol-dependent. We do not know how as a society to socialize without the presence of alcohol. You mentioned the football game, uh, Heather. If uh, alcohol were not present or allowed within 25 miles of the stadium uh, and it was enforceable, tickets would cost you $1.45 and there'd be 115 people there. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a national holiday called New Year's Eve. Uh, We don't mind. In fact, we encourage you to go get drunk, just don't drive. Uh, So you are living in a society that is encouraging you. You are at a college campus that encourages you. You are at a place in life where scripting is developing. You have family patterns. Uh, You are free. You are doing things. Uh, The only thing I can say, one of the things we used to say, I I, I don't think it's the wisest. I think Andy's uh, more correct on his number of drinks uh, per week. But don't drink more than you can metabolize. Uh, that means about one drink every hour and a half. Uh, you you should you probably won't then end up abusing the same way. Uh, I will say this to you: uh, there's a statistic that uh, AA puts out. For every person who has a seat in an AA room and is recovering, there are 37 people who will die from the disease. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. uh, alcoholism in particular is uh, a fatal disease. It will kill you. Uh, it's not worth it. Uh, there are better ways to learn to socialize and to enjoy life. <laughs> Be aware you are you are fighting a, a deadly, deadly uh, disease. It is not a matter of willpower. You're not a bad person. You're not weak people. Uh, it, it is an addictive agent. So that's Thank it. Thank you. What about you, Andy? One thing that I would really like for college-age students to hear me say is this. Been there. Granted, it's been a lot of years. It doesn't seem like it, but it, I've been there. Um, you know, the college I went to, it was a, quote, Christian school. Anything you wanted was readily available, constantly available. Just because it's available, just because friends are doing it, it is okay to say no to your friends. It's okay to volunteer to be the designated driver if you know you have friends who are going to get stupid drunk and damage themselves. It's actually a way that you can be helpful. One of the things that I frequently challenge my patients with who are at that stage of, do I really have a problem? I'm not sure I have. I don't think I have a problem. Everybody else does, but I don't think I do, is give yourself a challenge. If you can, choose an amount of time, a month, five weeks, six weeks, two months, that you will not consume more than those numbers I was just talking. If you're a male, no more than two drinks in a day, no more than 14 in a week. If you're a woman, no more than one a day, no more than seven in a week, you know, See if you can do that, if you can maintain that for a couple of months, just to challenge yourself. It has nothing to do with your friends, what they're doing, what they don't do. This is about you. See if you can do this for yourself. Well, thank you both so much for um, your insight, your um, your time, your wisdom, your experience. We uh, intentionally selected folks for this podcast that were also available to be uh, reached out to or contacted after uh, by email or if you know Andy does see patients and because of Zoom and um, virtual technology that doesn't you don't have to be in St. Petersburg to do that. Um, I can tell you from experience that I have put students in contact with my dad before to talk about the addictive process in their own lives and family members' lives, and that's been incredibly helpful. So in the notes to this podcast, there will be contact information for both Andy and Bob. I think it's really funny when I say in the notes for this podcast. I have no idea how that works. Someone's going to put it somewhere. So hopefully you guys, if you can't find it, just email me. Uh, you can find me at Gator Wesley. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and I think I it's incredibly funny. I think it's incredibly funny when you call me Bob. <laughs> I know, I do too. I do. <laughs> but thank you both so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Um, this is important conversation for our, our listening community. And we are grateful for both of you. Thank you.